2: It's the state of the state in Georgia. Hay hikes and gun rights.
1: We boldly seize the opportunity to plant seeds for the future in good soil. So a bountiful harvest would bring our state brighter, more prosperous days ahead.
2: This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein, your host with Patricia Murphy. We are two of the political insiders at the AJC. Patricia, Thank you so much for joining me. And sorry in advance for my raspier than usual voice. I am still getting over the Georgia victory in Indianapolis. I got back a couple days ago and I'm still feeling the side effects from that tremendous adventure out to Indiana.
3: That's a small price for you to pay, Greg, based on the level of enjoyment you got out of that excursion, I think.
1: I don't want to interject myself too early here. My voice sounds fine and I was in the same place you were, so why does your voice sound so raspy?
2: I maybe I was cheering more than you. Maybe maybe I got a lot less sleep than you. I might have I might have averaged 3 hours of sleep a night if I was lucky. We had a uh, a little bit of a reunion of of friends I hadn't seen in a long time. About about 10 of my best friends all piled into one house in the Indianapolis suburbs and then about 80 of us met right right before the game. So it was a it was a fun time, uh, but it was also a huge week for Georgia politics. And the governor might have had maybe his his most bipartisan-friendly proposal at Eggs and Issues the other day when he said that he would suggest a resolution that the college football championship game be played on a Saturday rather than a Monday uh, because if Georgia continues its championship ways – uh, this will be a problem for the 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 college football championship being played on the first day of every legislative session from here until whenever
3: yes i agree i have a screenshot of my snooze button that i took at 3:45 a.m. because even i could not get up that early after the dogs win
2: look at you the, the hardcore uga fan <laughs> well <laughs> We will end up digging into the fallout of what President Biden had to say while he was in Atlanta earlier this week, but we need to start with what happened under the Gold Dome on Thursday. Both of us were there for the governor's final State of the State address of this first term.
1: Our state has celebrated unprecedented success by keeping our state open for business, bringing record levels of jobs and investment, and and fighting to put hard work in Georgians first. We now have the opportunity to build a safer, stronger Georgia fruit for all who call the Peach State home.
2: Patricia, the governor's got a lot of money to play around with here. We, the state has a $2.2 billion reserve fund, and it's expected to even top that in terms of revenue. It had a record revenue year last year. It's going to top that this next fiscal year. So the governor has has some wiggle room and he's using it to dispense with a lot of items on the wish list, pay raises for public em- employees of, of $5,000, um, uh, massive construction spending, um, $2,000 teacher pay raises, and of course, that $250 to $500 tax reba- rebate uh, that it, at the cost of about $1.6 billion dollars.
3: That's right. I think also um, what I heard in there was a huge amount of spending on public education. Um, He talked a lot about putting money back into the budget that the legislature cut at his request during COVID. He called them austerity measures. He wants to replace all of that money Um, and also talked about uh, supporting... Our teachers and their heroic efforts uh, talked about bonuses for bus drivers, for school nurses, for paraprofessionals. His daughter is a school teacher. um, But then also, uh, I think we all remember fights that governors have had with teachers uh, to their own detriment in an election year. And um, Governor Kemp is really, I think, understands how much people are focused on the schools right now, focused on the teachers and everything that they've done. And so uh, it was really the top item that he talked about in his State of the State address. Yeah, he's trying
2: to take teacher funding and, and school funding off the table for Democrats in 2022. And you know, not that long ago, in 2014, that was one of the major arguments that Jason Carter used against Nathan Deal, that, that the state under Nathan Deal's watch had not fully funded schools under the – what's called the QBE formula. It's very technical, but basically the state hadn't been fully funding the school systems and uh, had refused to restore austerity cuts. And back then the financial situation was a lot more tenuous than it is now uh, for governor Kemp. And so he can use this sort of largesse um, uh, between uh, the state's economic rebound from the early days of the pandemic to also, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars pouring in, from COVID relief funds. So between those two giant cash infusions, um, he's got a lot more breathing room To pursue some of these policies.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think we definitely um, heard him do that. There were a number of other um, policies that I think would be broadly popular for uh, Georgians in general. Um, A $5,000 pay raise, not a bonus, but an ongoing salary increase for all state workers. That includes uh, members of the state patrol. That includes all kinds of law enforcement officers. Um, He also talked about a heavy focus, I think, on public safety and crime. There are just crimes Statistics that uh, are really, uh, you watch them kind of go up and up and up, uh, not just in Atlanta, not just metro Atlanta, but across parts of rural Georgia, southern Georgia. And so I think public safety has been on many communities' minds um, in Augusta, Columbus, Savannah. I mean, it's just something that um, we hear and continue to hear about quite a bit. He also talked about um, boosting the GBI's crime lab. Um, So those were the types of things that were, I think, very broadly popular and things that he he has been talking about really throughout his administration. We did, however, I think, hear a good bit of red meat. Uh, This is a governor who has a GOP primary coming up and uh, that certainly uh, didn't go un, uh, unaddressed. Uh, he did not talk about the primary, but he certainly had some, um, some uh, proposals that are not going to be popular with Democrats.
2: I am glad you mentioned that because um, you know the budget is going to get the headlines. It is of course very important. Uh, the amount of money that is being spent on tax refunds, on teacher pay raises, on um, one-time bonuses on 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 fully funding school systems and restoring austerity cuts to the higher education system as well but behind all that the governor is also pursuing to me what seems like the most conservative policy agenda i've i've seen in whatever it is 18 years i've covered state legislative sessions um and and let's talk about one of the f- biggest items on that list is education, the governor targeting critical race theory.
1: That's why I'm looking forward to working with the members of the general assembly, this legislative session to protect our students from divisive ideologies like critical race theory that pits kids against each other. Also look forward to working with the house and the Senate to pass and sign a parental bill of rights in our education system and other pieces of legislation that I strongly support to ensure fairness in school sports, in a dress of seen materials online and in our school libraries. Let's tackle these one at
2: a time. Critical race theory first. It's it's a graduate level course um, that, that talks about racism as, as a systemic foundational principle that has affected everything in American society today. And it is also not something that is being taught in K through 12 schools. There's no evidence of that being taught in public schools um, in, in Georgia. Uh, But it's also become the sort of uh, byword for controversy in media, sorry, in conservative media circles. So this is something the governor uh, first highlighted about a year ago. And uh, it is a crowd pleaser among conservatives. And it's very polarizing among moderates and liberals. And it's something that we'll have a huge debate over over the next few weeks.
3: I think if the governor um, is looking for a blueprint of how this could work, and we know that his campaign and every governor's campaign Republicans across the country are looking at would be the example of Glenn Youngkin in Virginia, critical race theory and uh, generally content in schools, curriculum in schools, blew up as the primary issue in that Virginia governor's race. And that really gets a lot of the credit for Glenn Youngkin's victory because of the way um, that the Democratic uh, nominee responded to that. And so I think that there is uh, already this understanding that this can be a winning campaign issue. And it's also just totally caught fire among the conservative grassroots. Um, I did a sit down interview with the governor right after his state of the state and asked him um, if a lot of these really conservative proposals, critical race theory, and I know we'll get into his um, gun proposal a little bit later if that is because he has this uh, this primary coming up from David Perdue. And he said, I reached out to uh, the state school board. I wrote to the school board and raised critical race theory to them directly way before David Perdue ever got into this race. And if anybody is playing politics with issue, it's David Perdue. So he was uh, uh, really rejected that premise that he was doing all these conservative things because he has a uh, GOP primary, he said, I'm doing these conservative things because I'm conservative.
2: And look, you know, he is the first lifelong Republican governor in state history. Um, and he's right. He he, he wrote those letters. He, he enacted those policies long before David Perdue got in the race, long before I think even me or you were talking about the possibility of David Perdue getting in the race. At the same time, that wasn't in a vacuum either. Even if he didn't have to worry about David Perdue getting in the race, he still had to worry about winning back Donald Trump supporters. Right? It was all done after the 2020 election, after the 2021 runoffs, and after Donald Trump started uh, un, unveiling <laughs> one attack after another, uh, leveling Governor Kemp and calling him a rhino and, call, and saying that he wished he had he lost the race. So clearly, you know, even if Governor Kemp didn't have any Republican primary opponent, you'd you'd see him moving to the right because he has to win back some of those Donald Trump supporters in order to win a second term uh, in in November. And and the part and parcel of that is, I think there was a very important line he he gave. It was um, talking about, quote, ensuring fairness in school sports. That is basically uh, tantamount to him, saying he was supporting an effort to ban transgender women and girls from playing on female teams in high schools, uh, we didn't get an indication any otherwise. There's no comment um, with both of our efforts to have him elaborate on what that means. But what supporters of those transgender bans see it as is support for that, and that's going to be a major, another major battle. I- I've said this throughout. Any one of these issues, you know, uh, critical race theory, or or, or the uh, permitless gun carry, or, or this would be dominant in a normal legislative session but this is such a, a packed election year session that um, there'll be there'll be you know one of these issues a week it seems
3: Yes. Fairness in schools was really just a, and fairness in school sports, it was just sort of a passing line. And you had to kind of back up and hit rewind mentally to figure out what he was talking about, because it was not the focus of his speech. Uh, But it certainly uh, was clear. It was uh, in the same sentence as critical race theory. So it certainly is clear that it's a package uh, for uh, conservative voters and for parents, uh, particularly in some of these, I think, suburban Atlanta schools uh, where the Republicans really need to pick up some support among uh, especially suburban moms. And so um, this is something that we have seen happening all across the country. We know now it will happen in Georgia in this legislative session. He asked him specifically, are you talking about transgender athletes? He said, well, I'm not going to, I don't want to get into the details of it right now. Um, But I think another thing that's important to understand, this doesn't necessarily have full support among Republicans and the General Assembly. This just may be a bridge too far and a conversation that some Republicans don't want to have. So I don't know how far it will get in the General Assembly, but it certainly will get an airing. And Republicans, especially conservative Republicans, looking for that Trump voter support will get a lot of mileage of it in the meantime.
2: Yeah, we'll be watching Speaker Ralston on on the transgender a sports issue in particular, uh, but you know, there's there's so much more packed into that speech. We wrote about it a couple of days before it was unveiled in the State of the State. But the governor is making criminal justice overhauls a priority, and and he's departing significantly from the track record that that his predecessor, Governor Nathan Deal, had set out in terms of criminal justice reforms. Governor Deal made it a priority to to overhaul the. The prison system and, and divert more low-level offenders away from from prison beds. Governor Kemp is spending is proposing spending tens of millions of dollars on new prisons, and not only that, but new crackdowns on violent crime. Something that you know will be hard for anyone to vote against and will be hard for folks to speak against. But it it is a very different sort of policy approach. Let, let's listen to what he had to say about it.
1: The anti-gang task force, in particular, has been hard at work. And I'm very proud of the brave men and women of the GBI and all they have accomplished under the leadership of Director Vic Reynolds. But in too many jurisdictions across our state, soft on crime local governments and prosecutors have been unwilling to join the fight to rid their communities of these criminal networks. With many urban and some rural counties facing alarming levels of violent crime, we have the responsibility to act. To provide additional assistance for GBI's efforts to dismantle criminal street gangs, my budget proposal will include funding for a new anti-gang unit in the Attorney General's office, which will allow Attorney General Carr to direct some more resources in prosecuting gangs statewide.
2: So there you have it. Soft on crime, local prosecutors and government officials. Something you never hear Nathan Deal talk about. It's just a different approach, and it's one that kind of reflects at least a little bit, the concerns that we saw in the mayor's race when crime was the biggest issue among Atlanta voters. Governor Kemp is making the bet that it will continue to be a major issue among statewide voters. And frankly, I see the same from Democrats. I mean, one of the main reasons why party leaders recruited um, Charlie Bailey, a a former prosecutor, to switch from the attorney general's race to lieutenant governor's race is that so I think – they could have someone like him on the top of the ticket who could say, hey, Democrats aren't soft on crime. He has put away gang criminals and, and, and cracked down on gang activities. So clearly, uh, you know, a, a, an issue that Democrats will have to be uh, dealing with and Republicans will, will, will emphasize throughout the legislative session.
3: Yeah, I think that Brian Kemp has just a different reality on the ground than Nathan Deal did at the time when he was pushing forward his criminal justice reform. Um, uh, Deal was pushing that forward when there were really record low crime levels. It just didn't feel like um, crime and fighting crime was a tippy top issue for voters. I think that's a really different situation now two years into COVID. We've heard from mayors across the state, uh, sheriffs across the state, police chiefs across the state, that uh, they they need more help. They need more resources. And one of those, um, even though Brian Kemp talked about uh, kind of liberal local prosecutors, um, one local prosecutor who is really begging for these resources is Fannie Willis in Fulton County. And she has come up to the capital, the state capital, and told committees uh, during the special session that was meant to be just about um, redistricting. They held a committee hearing, a couple of committee hearings about um, uh, public safety, and she told those committees uh, she needs more GBI resources because the GBI houses the crime lab. And the crime lab is what um, analyzes ballistics, analyzes rape kits, does everything that a prosecutor needs to build an airtight case. And without enough GBI staff, Fannie Willis said, I cannot put people behind bars who I need to because you guys are not funding the GBI adequately. And so this was a concern. Um, she went up, stated publicly, and she said, look, I'm, I'm here to tell the truth. I'm not here to make anybody feel better about the situation. Um, and so I think that was particularly Particularly one piece that they just couldn't ignore, um, and the rest of it really does fold into Brian Kemp's uh, Brian Kemp's message here, um, which is to be you know kind of quote tough on crime um, in in the face of some local prosecutors, not Fulton counties, but some local prosecutors have been elected, um, and they have uh, moved forward with quite a progressive agenda.
2: Yeah, and he is also directly tying that public safety element to his push for what I see as the. You know, the biggest expansion of, of, of where you can carry guns, of, of gun rights in, in at least a decade in Georgia. Let, let's listen.
1: To build a safer, stronger Georgia, we must ensure every Georgian feels safe and secure in their communities. As I announced last week, I believe that starts with fully recognizing the constitutional rights granted to law-abiding Georgians in our founding documents. And I look forward to supporting constitutional carry legislation this session.
2: Patricia, if there is one issue that Georgia Democrats seized on beyond, you know, the the usual calls to expand Medicaid, it was this legislation. It was this uh, permitless carry bill. I, I talked to James Beverly, the top Democrat in the House. He said the governor is more concerned with getting guns in the hands of people than vaccines in the arms of citizens. So that's just a kind of taste of, of the rhetoric to come because uh, the governor has made this maybe his top um, uh, legislative Policy priority, you know, the budget is his his number one concern. But, you know, in terms of policy, it's he's going to put all his capital behind passing this gun expansion.
3: Yeah, constitutional carry was really the first policy proposal we heard from Governor Kemp coming into the new year. You um, had that big event that you went to at that gigantic gun store um, and came forward Huge. with this proposal. Um, it's important to remember, and that's why I'll be watching this debate so carefully, this is not widely popular with law enforcement officers. There is a real concern um, among some law enforcement officers that without requiring a permit, you also are not requiring the background check that includes um, sort of a mental health screen uh, or any reason to, to believe that somebody uh, either doesn't have the uh, the criminal background or the, the mental health background um, uh, to be responsibly carrying a weapon. And so um, I don't know how this uh, how this will go if there is a loud objection from law enforcement officers. They're talking so much about how we need to support um, support law enforcement, quote, back the blue. Um, this is an area um, that the blue is not so excited about. And it's an important piece of it to really watch carefully.
0: Only from the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now, the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash Indictment Newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash Indictment Newsletter.
2: Don't forget to make sure you're subscribing to The Jolt. That is our daily political newsletter compiled by myself, Patricia, very early, and Tia Mitchell, very late, in Washington. We comb through all of our sources and reporting to make sure you have the best political tip sheet in your inbox every morning. We stay up really late at night or really early in the morning to get it to you. Uh, Coming up on Friday, we'll delve in deeper into Governor Kemp's speech, including what we just talked about, um, his willingness to embrace this fight over transgender athletes. So we'll have a little bit more there. Now let's dig into the other major news story in Atlanta this past week, which was President Joe Biden's visit.
1: I've been having these quiet conversations with the members of Congress for the last two months. I'm tired of being quiet.
2: The president took on the voting rights legislation that is stalling in Congress. So I ask every elected official in America, how do you want to be remembered? At consequential moments in history, they present a choice. Do you want to be on the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be on the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be on the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? This is the moment to decide to defend our elections, to defend our democracy. And if you do that, you will not be alone. So these were his most forceful comments about, about the federal voting rights legislation. First time that President Biden said he's willing to roll back the filibuster in limited circumstances to, to to pass this legislation, but equating opponents of the federal voting rights bill to vile segregationists hasn't really gone over well. And even even some leading Democrats have said he should have thought differently about how he how he framed this argument.
3: Yeah, you know, Mitch McConnell in an interview said that he looked at Joe Biden and didn't recognize the person he's become. I mean, it was really a different uh, presentation from Joe Biden. Um, But I think he is really feeling the pressure from voting rights uh, advocates. Uh, There were obviously voting rights groups that boycotted that speech. That didn't come. They didn't call it a boycott, but they also didn't come. Um, Stacey Abrams was not there. Uh, She said she had a scheduling conflict, uh, but. Obviously, he would have preferred that she was there. So I think he needed to make that case very, very forcefully. Um, And he did. Uh, The problem is that now when he is back in Washington, there's really not a path forward on this, even if he wanted to change the filibuster rules and have what he calls a carve out on the filibuster just for voting rights. Um, Senator Joe Manchin, who is uh, 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 key to this, and opposes changing filibuster rules. So there's no such thing as a carve out. Either there's nothing or you have the whole turkey. There is no way to uh, to loosen the filibuster rule without eliminating the filibuster rule. And so it I just don't know where they go with this. They What they really need to do uh, in order to pass it is to trim it down, um, make it a little bit smaller and more narrow, or open it up to amendments. I mean, there are a number of things they could do on the floor, to at least get a conversation going about this. But as it is in the scope that it is and um, and uh, the way that it addresses voting rights and it is an extremely broad, expansive bill, even though it's been narrowed, Democrats just don't have the votes to get this through. Um, You can hear the frustration from voting rights groups. Um, It reminds me a lot of immigration groups that we heard from after um, the Affordable Care Act passed under the um, Obama administration. They really felt like, you know, you guys put us at the end of the line. We were instrumental in getting you elected and you chose your priorities and we were not your priority. And that's really the message I think that we heard loud and clear from voting rights groups who have a point. Uh, You know, Joe Biden really was struggling and continues to struggle to respond to COVID. um, But he had a number of other um, huge big ticket items uh, that he wanted to get through and spent a lot of political capital on that. And there's not a lot left over to bend people's arms on voting rights.
2: Yeah. Meanwhile, we're not hearing much about Build Back Better or as much um, because, uh, you know, there's only so much capital to spread around. Um, But, you know, I was struck on Wednesday when Senator Warnock, Um, gave the federal update at the eggs and issues breakfast. He was trying to draw a contrast between how he was arguing about federal voting rights laws and Joe Biden was rather than equating opponents to Confederate leaders. He was talking about how it was a, it was in the best interest of business leaders. It was good economic policy to expand voting rights. What is good for their employees, the right to vote is good for the businesses, um, But, you know, I was also – I mean, watching this partly from afar in Indianapolis and keeping track of it, it was surprising and maybe even a little bit baffling to me to see – I've covered Georgia politics for a while now. And every time a Democratic president, whether it be Obama, whether it be Clinton, and of course now um, President Biden, would come to town, Democrats here seemed overjoyed that they were getting any attention. Right, even if it was um, for a, a very quick stop, or even just a fundraiser, Democrats would lay out the red carpet. And you know, now Georgia is a battleground state. Now we are getting a lot more attention. Uh, President Biden's been here multiple times this year alone, including pre-runoff rallies. Uh, sorry, President Biden has been here multiple times in the last year alone, including a pre-runoff rally right before the the, the Senate runoff votes. And you know, I think, I guess, a little bit of the shine is off and. We heard from a lot of Democratic officials, activists, advocates, elected officials, um, other leaders who were uh, upset about his visit. Not the fact that he was coming to talk about um, – coming to Georgia and talk about voter rights necessarily. Some were mad that they had little coordination, little advance notice. Some were mad he wasn't holding a fundraiser while he was here for any of the uh, Democratic statewide candidates. And of course, um, we heard vocally – from some of the activists saying he shouldn't have come at all. He should focus his attention on winning over Democratic senators to change the filibuster rule rather than coming to Georgia um, to to lean on Georgians to help make his case.
3: You know, it's the type of dynamic that uh, you frequently see in the majority party. Uh, There is a, um, you know, there's a double-edged sword to being in charge. Is that then you have the responsibility to deliver on all those promises you made. Were there not a uh, Democratic House and Senate, Joe Biden coming to town would still be a great message event, push the Republicans to do something. But right now they have a divided Democratic caucus, and I think that uh, voting groups, um, uh, local allies believed that when a uh, Democrat is elected president, when we have the power, all of this is going to change. Um, and then you realize very quickly, especially with that tiny, tiny majority, um, that it's not going to change overnight. Um, and you go back to the Civil Rights Act. Um, that was 10 years in the making minimum, um, you know, if not 100 years in the making, if you really think about it. So um, I think that there is an impatience, an anxiety that you can feel when you talk to Democrats that they may lose the majority next year, particularly in the House elections. And um, they want to see seamless execution and quick legislation. And that doesn't really describe the Washington of today.
2: And you touched on this before, but Voting rights activists and advocates skipped the event, made it very clear why they were skipping the event. They were frustrated with with the lack of action in Washington. But someone else who skipped the event was Stacey Abrams, who is perhaps the nation's most prominent voting rights activist. Um, She said a scheduling conflict, and later on in a statement to the AJC a few days later, um, said it was essentially an event she could not reschedule. So we still don't know what it is, and they've said they will not say who it is, Um, but – the very fact that groups aligned with her, groups with close ties to her were, were, were very vocally skipping the event, and the fact that she was not coming to the event set the message that, hey, she's also not happy with, with, with the lack of action in Washington. Um, there were some um, folks, including media outlets, that tried to um, assert that she was distancing herself from the president and his agenda overall, um, which we on the ground here – no is not the case. I mean, she tried to lobby to be his vice president. She opened her campaign by saying that she would tie herself to, to the president and his agenda. Um, there's, there's not much daylight between the two of them overall, but certainly on voting rights, you could, you could see there was some frustration from, from her allies over um, the, the, the pace of, of this legislation moving forward.
3: Well, you could also see the frustration from the White House that, oh, okay, if you're not coming, could you say why? <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. it really created a very bad optic, um, and we, you know, have been told, and we certainly. Um, uh, agree that there there is no separating Stacey Abrams from Joe Biden at this point, and there's no need to. There is really no disagreement um, between the two of them. Um, but I think uh, uh, the Democrats might have uh, really thought about either asking in advance, "Are you available?" <laughs> or uh, maybe uh, even postponing that. I think they felt really pressured to get this trip in before um, Martin Luther King Jr. Day on Monday. Um, but I think it it uh, created an event that didn't have the intended. Effect.
2: Yeah, I reviewed some of the emails that went back and forth between the White House and the Abrams' camp, and she did not get very much advance notice. Uh, a lot of a lot of Democrats said, I'm, I'm talking about high ranking Democrats said they learned of his visit through the AJC or shortly before. Um, so, and of course, there was there was grumbling about the timing, not just the fact that um, it happened with little notice, but it happened. Tuesday after the national championship game, the day after the national championship game, when a lot of politicians, Republicans and Democrats, were up in Indianapolis, it wasn't hard to find many many politicians. Believe it or not, um, my brothers were at one of the bars in downtown Indianapolis, and, and I went to go meet them. And I walk in, and who is standing with them? He didn't know they don't know each other, but standing right next to them was Karen Handel's husband, Steve. So I couldn't <laughs> avoid politics for even. Even a drink at, at, a, at a crowded downtown bar, and certainly at the game. I mean, the first row in a box suite, uh, basically on the field, was State Representative Casey Carpenter wearing a giant fake wig um, <laughs> in a red and black jacket. So politicians were everywhere, and a lot and a lot of them, you know, unless they had a charter flight, could not make it back for Joe Biden's event.
3: Well, and if you even look at the coverage of um, of the event here, obviously, the Atlanta Journal and Constitution wants very much to cover uh, the president's visit to um, such a historic place for such a historic reason to go for the current president to go to Dr. King's Crypt um, and credit Scott King's Crypt and talk about voting rights. That is front page news. Uh, you do it on the same day that Georgia has just won its first national championship in 41 years and you might be below the fold. And I think that really yeah. is what happened. You know, a little bit of scheduling could have addressed that. I was
2: looking at our, the schedule for our friends over at WSB, who of course covered you know the, the visit as well, but what they were promoing was Uh, triple team coverage. They had a reporter and of course in Atlanta covering the fallout of the UGA victory reporters in (laughs) Athens. And they sent a reporter down to Blackshear, Georgia, the home of Stetson Bennett, the MVP, offensive MVP of of the Georgia Bulldogs. So that was the focus um, uh, on TV. And of course the AJC had, you know, tremendous coverage of the event, Um, but it was overshadowed, right? It was overshadowed by the first, Georgia's first national championship in 41 years.
3: (laughs) I think it's important to talk about who was there with the president. Obviously, um, Senator Warnock traveled down uh, with the president. So did Senator Ossoff. Um, Jesse Jackson was there. Al Sharpton, um, a whole coalition of voting rights leaders um, were there, um, but it just did not have the intended effect. And I think also you talked about the tone of the president and also the remarks of Senator Warnock um, at the Eggs and Issues breakfast. Senator Warnock is somebody who has been... Um, kind of taking the opposite tack of the White House on this. He has been speaking about this and only this. Um, In some cases, it was the only subject of his maiden floor speech for the Senate uh, voting rights. Um, He has gone to the floor of the Senate many times to push for this. And instead of calling his fellow senators Bull Connor um, or George Wallace, he has said to them, this is a moral moment. Um, This is a moral moment you need to think about what you're doing with yourself and with your role as a leader in this country. Um, That also hasn't moved the needle quite a bit, but he certainly has, um, I think, uh, uh, developed a message for Senator Manchin that he can listen to and work with. And so Manchin has come to the table and has been willing to... deal and negotiate on this bill. Uh, they've changed it for Senator Manchin. So I'm not sure this is the end of the road for this conversation, but I do think that Senator Warnock's approach to it has been quite successful. Um, unfortunately, the trip uh, that has accompanied this issue was not quite as successful.
2: Yeah. And as you said, these, these efforts tend to be years long, sometimes a decade or more long. And the problem for Democrats is their window is narrowing, especially with the likelihood that the U.S. House will flip to GOP control. Uh, in November. Um, now that the legislature is back in session, we plan to drop two shows a week and be sure to catch everything else. The AJC podcast department has to offer this week. The award-winning breakdown podcast has a new episode on Sunday to dig into the sentencing of those convicted of killing Ahmad Arbery. D Orlando Ledbetter D led has his top 10 Falcons off season storylines on the bow chronicles. Get a tour of the Obama portraits at the High Museum on Access Atlanta. And we have a new podcast to announce. Coming up on Monday, MLK Day, The Hawks Report debuts with Sarah Spencer. The first guest, John Collins, if he's still with the Hawks. So please be sure to rate, (laughs) review, share, and subscribe. This and all of the podcasts here at the Atlanta Journal of Constitution. Thank you, Patricia. Thank you, Producer Jay Black. Thanks all of our listeners, and we will see you next week.